Uh, well, we live in a time of increasing divisiveness and hostility. Uh, we recognize that, all of us. We're, we're in the midst of a culture, living in the midst of a culture that, that demands that we should affirm and tolerate everyone's beliefs and lifestyles, and, and, that, and you, whatever they are, so long as your beliefs and your lifestyle are not exclusive. In that case, if your beliefs, your lifestyle are exclusive, you are to be condemned, you are to be excluded, and you are to be canceled, uh, showing the impossibility, really, of ever really truly being able to affirm everyone's beliefs and lifestyle. Uh, in the end, the culture actually preaches an intolerant tolerance, right? A, a tolerance that says, you must accept everything unless your beliefs are exclusive and then we cannot accept your beliefs, right? So you see the contradiction. It's an intolerant tolerance, which, which tends to only result in increasing divisiveness and hostility. Uh, a pastor on uh, social media uh, that I followed this week uh, kind of posted this, kind of summarizing the similarity between life in the Roman Empire and life in the modern West. The Roman Empire would say, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities, right? It's an intolerant tolerance. You're supposed to honor all gods, but your God's exclusive. That you're canceled. Modern West, you Christians are too exclusive, you threaten the social order because you won't honor all identities. It's the same thing. The exclusivity of Christianity finds no friends in a culture that allegedly values inclusivity and affirmation above all else. But friends, it's not just out there in the culture that we see this divisiveness and hostility. It's also right here in the church too. Right here in the church right here in this church, in fact, at times, right? Christians fighting with one another. We fight with one another over wearing masks and the validity of the pandemic, right? We fight with each other. We, we, Christians fight and divide over racial tensions and our approach to how we deal with that. Christians arguing about politics. Christians saying, you must vote this way to really be a follower of Christ. You cannot vote that way if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, and much like the rest of the culture, when we find ourselves feeling so strongly about our views on all of these sorts of things, we refuse. We refuse to meaningfully engage one another, but instead just label someone an enemy, right? They're a Marxist. They're a fundamentalist. They're a racist. They're a cop hater and so on and so on and so on. We label those who disagree as an enemy and we refuse to meaningfully and respectfully engage with them. We refuse to seek to understand where they're coming from and we just accuse and they can then cancel. And it's time to find another church. On and on and on. It's very much no different in the church oftentimes than it is in the world, in the culture that we live in. The question we must ask ourselves, though, as believers on all sides of any of those sorts of issues is this, does our heart reflect the heart of Jesus in our attitudes and our actions? Does your heart reflect the heart of Jesus in your attitudes and actions? 
We mentioned last week in, that the book of Jonah is, is a very unique book uh, in, the, in the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Here's a prophet who runs from God's presence, who runs from God's word. Here's a prophet who's an anti-missionary. He does the opposite of what we expect a prophet of God to do. And in the book of Jonah, we're, we're getting a deep look into a heart that fails to reflect the heart of Jesus at every turn. And in showing us the, the ugliness of a heart uh, that is so opposite to Jesus, by contrast, God is, is revealing to us the heart that he desires for us to have. That's what we see as we continue our study looking at Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you haven't already, and, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jonah 1, verses 4 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they, went, uh, then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray by your Spirit that you would speak to us today. Father, as we're confronted with the ugliness of our own hearts, would you soften our hearts to hear that and also see your grace for us that meets us, that covers us, that welcomes us, that accepts us and enables us to have hearts more like yours. Oh, Lord, we pray by your grace, through your word today, you would help us to have hearts that are more like Jesus. We pray in his precious name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. 
right, to catch us up just a little bit here, uh, you, you know, last week we saw how the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, located uh, in northern Iraq, modern day, uh, the most powerful, violent empire of that day, the sworn enemy of Israel, Jonah's people. And Jonah arose and went in the opposite direction, running from the word of the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Called to go east, he went west. Called to travel over land, he bought a ticket and boarded a boat to head out to sea. Called to go to the big city, Jonah buys a one-way ticket to the outermost end of the world. And now we come to his attempt on that boat to journey to Tarshish uh, out at sea. And and contrasting what Jonah actually does with what he should have been doing, we're we're given a portrait here of, of the heart that God desires. God desires a heart full of compassion, a heart resting in a Christian identity, a heart of sacrificial love. God desires a heart full of compassion. Jonah tries to run, but it is impossible to run from the presence of the Lord. You would kind of assume that a prophet would know that already, but yet he, he runs anyway, and God won't let him go. Right, verse 4, but the Lord, and Jonah runs, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah refused to go to that great city, as it's referred to, uh, of Nineveh in verse 2. That's how the, the word says, it, it describes it, that, that great city. He refused to go to that great city, so God sent a great storm around his boat. It's the same word in, in the Hebrew translated for both the city and the, and the storm. This was a serious storm, right? A mighty tempest, like a hurricane that just comes around Jonah's boat, threatens to tear it apart. Jonah's, of course, not the only one on the boat. The boat is also full of these pagan sailors, uh, the mariners, not the Seattle mariners, uh, but the the sailors of this ship. Uh, Now, there's there's some more irony here that we find in the book. Constantly, we're just met with all sorts of irony in the book of Jonah. Jonah is on this pleasure cruise. Why? Why? because he doesn't want to go and take God's word to a bunch of pagans. He doesn't want to give a bunch of wicked pagans the opportunity to experience God's mercy and come to worship him and know him as their own God. That's what he's running from, and that's exactly what he's about to see happen right in front of him. We talked last week about the the perfect symmetry of the book of Jonah and how it's divided into these perfectly symmetrical halves. First, uh, Jonah's running from God, and then secondly, his mission to Nineveh. And each of those halves has these three sections. God's word that comes to Jonah, uh, then Jonah's encounter with a group of pagans, and finally, Jonah talking to God. Uh, Same thing, both halves. Twice, Jonah finds himself in these up-close, impersonal uh, encounters with people who are racially and religiously very different from him. And in both cases, Jonah's behavior is dismissive and unhelpful, while the pagans, who we would assume would be far worse than the prophet of God, actually turn out to be far more admirable in the ways that they act and in their compassion and in their kindness than Jonah. Jonah isn't just a book about taking the gospel to foreign lands, right? 
but it reveals to us God's heart for people of every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. It shows us that God cares deeply about how his people, how you, Christian, are to relate to and treat people who are deeply different from you racially, culturally, morally, religiously. God cares deeply about how you are to relate to these people who are vastly different from you in all these sorts of ways. God's desire is that you and I would treat people of different races, different nationalities, different faiths in a way that is loving and respectful and generous and just. You can do that, by the way, and not affirm sin. That's actual tolerance. And what you find out as you read the Bible is that real tolerance is actually a very Christian, biblical notion. That we can agree to, our, uh, to disagree on our exclusive faith and still love our neighbor as ourself. We can disagree with someone's lifestyle, yet still love our neighbor as ourself. We can disagree over our politics and yet still love our neighbor as ourself. Tolerance, it's a very Christian idea. In short, he desires, God desires, that we would have hearts full of compassion. That's what we're really seeing here. In response to Jonah's running, God has sent a violent storm upon this boat that's carrying Jonah and this group of Gentile pagan sailors. And when the storm hits, verse five, right, the mariners were afraid. We're meant to infer from our reading here that these are experienced sailors. Experienced sailors who no doubt have experienced their fair share of storms and weathered them uh, pun intended, and uh, took them in stride, right? They, so this must have been much more than just another storm to rattle these guys to such a degree. It was a uniquely terrifying storm. We're probably meant to also infer that these probably weren't the most religiously devout people either. Sailors do have a reputation after all. But the storm shakes these men to the core and leads them to start calling out to whatever God that they each know of. They are in panic mode. They're throwing cargo off the ship, doing everything they can to lighten the load and keep the ship from just breaking apart. Meanwhile, Jonah has continued his downward descent that we saw in the first three verses down into the belly of the ship where he's fallen fast asleep. Why is he sleeping? Why is he sleeping? Jonah is many things, but, but he's not unaware of his direct disobedience of God. You know, anger makes you tired. Guilt makes you tired. Anxiety, right? Grief makes you tired. And Jonah's wrestling with all these emotions because he knows he's wrong. He knows he's disobeying God. And he's exhausted. We're meant to see, though, in this, this powerful contrast between Jonah and the sailors. While Jonah is out of touch with the, the danger that he's now in, the sailors are extremely alert to it. While Jonah is completely absorbed in himself and his own problems, the sailors are all doing everything they can to seek the common good of everyone on that ship. They 
each pray to their own God. But Jonah doesn't pray to his. The sailors are even spiritually aware enough to recognize that this is not just some random storm that's just popped up upon them. But because of its just unique intensity, they, they ascertain that this is of divine origin and likely, very possibly, a divine response to someone's sin. And unlike Jonah, these pagan sailors, they're not narrow and bigoted. They're open to calling on Jonah's God to save them. In fact, they're more ready to do that than Jonah is himself. Look at verse 6. So the captain of the boat came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Here comes the captain. What does he say? He says, Arise, call. In the Hebrew, it's the exact same words that God came to Jonah and said, Arise, go to Nineveh and call that city to repentance. It's more irony here. God had called his prophet to go to a pagan nation and and point those pagans to God. And here comes the Gentile pagan captain of this ship with God's very words on his mouth to point God's prophet back to God. From there, the sailors continue to act in commendable ways, right? They discern it's someone's sin, it's responsible for the storm, and they cast lots to see whose fault it is, basically. Casting lots in in these ancient days was a very common way of trying to discern God's will, and the lot, of course, falls to Jonah. We're, We're meant to see God's providence in that. It's not just random. No, God reveals very clearly it's his providence at work and their casting of lots that reveals it's Jonah. But even in this moment when Jonah is fully exposed, the sailors don't, don't rush in to beat him up or toss him from the ship. Instead, they continue to ask Jonah questions to discern the right decision, the next move. And when Jonah instructs them to throw, them from the, throw him from the boat, they do all they can to avoid doing that. They don't want to kill this man. At every point, The pagan sailors outshine the prophet of God. What are we meant to see in this? We're meant to see a lack of compassion and care for the common good in Jonah, contrasted with the compassion and care for the common good of the sailors. And in that, we're meant to see that it's right for the world at times to rebuke the church when the church lacks compassion, lacks the compassion that God desires for us to have for others. When the captain speaks to Jonah, he's rebuking him for not using his faith for the, for the common good. He's like, how, are you, how can you be sleeping right now? Can't you see we're all about to die? I understand you are a man of faith. Why aren't you using that faith right now to save us, to help us? There's a reality, as one commentator puts it, that in this world, non-Christians and Christians, we're all in the same boat. And in Jonah's case, literally in the same boat. The global pandemic has illustrated that for us. It's not an isolated thing. It doesn't just affect certain people in certain countries. Right? It's global. It's worldwide. Christians and non-Christians alike, we're in the same boat. 
So many other things, you know, crime spikes in Bloomington or, you know, suddenly we're hit with a global pandemic and there's poor health or there's a water shortage in the community. Whatever happens, the economy crumbles and lots of people are losing jobs. We're all in the same boat when those things happen. And there's a reality that that while as Christians, we, we should most certainly, at least we should, Uh, belong to the faith community, we also belong to the whole human community as well. And this is a fundamental doctrine that we hold as true as Christians, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that we are all created, every human being, in the image of God. We're all created in his image and likeness. And therefore, every human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth as a fellow image bearer of God. And that's why as Christians, we are pro-life. Every life, from conception to the grave. A real holistic pro-life stance. And when Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? When he was asked that question, what is the greatest commandment? He answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That second commandment really sums up what we're talking about here. We are to have a heart of compassion for our neighbor, to love our, our neighbor as ourself, which always begs the question, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus got that question, and he answered it with a parable in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. You can read that later, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the boat, Jonah is pretty much contradicting the teaching of that parable at every point. If you remember the parable, a Samaritan is traveling through this dangerous, desolate place uh, that's infested with, with robbers, wicked people, right, who do bad things to people, where he comes upon a Jewish man who had been attacked and robbed and left for dead in the middle of the road. Jews and Samaritans, of course, in this time were were sworn enemies. They hate one another. But the Samaritan is the one who rescues the wounded Jewish man, binds his wounds, takes him to an inn where he can be nursed back to health, all at the Samaritan's expense. Jesus tells this parable and then asks, who is the neighbor to this man? And of course, the answer is the Samaritan. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. In that, Jesus is telling us in the strongest of terms that anyone at all in need, anyone at all in need, regardless of race, religion, values, culture, anyone at all is your neighbor. They're your neighbor. The efforts of the Samaritan to provide care were, were extraordinary. One, one commentator on that parable, he describes, he says, he, the Samaritan, he stops on the Jericho road to assist someone he does not know in spite of the self-evident peril of doing so. He gives of his own goods and money freely, making no arrangements for reciprocation. In order to obtain care for the stranger, he enters an inn, itself a place of potential danger. And he even enters into an open-ended monetary relationship with the innkeeper a relationship in which the chance of extortion is high. Here is a Samaritan, a hated enemy, lavishly, extravagantly showing compassion to a man of another race and religion. And Jesus says, 
go and do likewise. John Calvin, right, the great reformer who sometimes just thought of as his cold theologian, anything but when he said this, remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions. And with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. That's God's heart. A heart full of compassion, the heart that he desires. Too often we're like Jonah. You and me, we're like Jonah more than we should be. We lack compassion for those who are not like us, for those who disagree with us, for those who don't share our faith. But God desires a heart full of compassion for everyone created in the image of God, for anyone in need. Christians are not just called to build up the church, but to also be ambassadors of Christ's compassion and mercy to the world around us, which means we don't just give funds to meet needs. That's a good thing to do, but that's not where it stops. But we get involved in people's lives. We, we extend relationship. We, we share resources beyond just our money, the resources of, of friendship and connections that we have. That's a lot of our wealth the opportunities and connections that we are connected to, and we share those freely. Seeking to provide for practical needs, whether it's school supplies and, and basic medical care through a care clinic here, or thinking creatively how we can provide safe places for those in need of safe harbors, caring for orphans and widows and single parents, seeking to be a part of racial reconciliation, Grieving with those who are grieving, weeping with those who weep. We should be a people who can simultaneously grieve the eight people who lost their lives in the FedEx shooting. While we also grieve the, the, the tragic killing of Dante Wright. While we also grieve the tragic death of Deputy James Driver, local Monroe County Sheriff's deputy who was killed in a tragic car accident while rushing to help someone else in their time of need. We should be a people who can simultaneously grieve all of those things, all of them. It shouldn't be one or the other, but both and, because all of them are image bearers of God. All 10 of those people are image bearers Whose, whose lives were tragically cut short. God desires a heart full of compassion that uses our faith for the common good. Too often I know I'm like Jonah, but I pray, I pray that the Lord would make me more and more to have a heart like his, full of compassion, more like the Samaritan. What about you? And that, friends, is point one. We got two more. So, hope you brought a lunch. Uh, we also see here that God desires us to have a heart resting in a Christian identity. You know, it's impossible to have a heart full of compassion if your identity is not rooted in Christ. To truly have that heart that he desires. You can't have it if your identity is not rooted in Christ. And Jonah's heart... His identity is a mess. When the lot falls to Jonah, the, the sailors ask him, who are you, right? Like, okay, so it's you. 
What's your story? Who are you? Why is this happening? What have you done? They want to know. Verse 8, this is what they say. Then they say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, sir? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Right? Three things they're essentially asking there. What is your mission? What's your purpose? What, where are you from? The place that you come from. And who are your people? What's your race? Those three questions. All three are identity questions. Who are your people? Right? Pro- probing at the social aspect. We, we all belong to communities beyond just our individual selves. Right? Whether it's your family, your racial group, your, your, your political party, your sorority, your favorite sports team. Right? We, we identify ourselves with all sorts of different groups, these group identities. But one of those group identities tends to kind of rise to the top in each of us. There's usually one that you tend to identify most closely with. The question, where do you come from, right? Getting at, like again, your physical space and place in which you feel most at home. Where, where are you from, right? What's your mission? It's getting at your meaning in life. Like we, we're people who are involved in many different things. We're all doing lots of different things. We work, we're engaged in various relationships. We, we rest, we travel, we, we like to do things for fun and, and recreation. But, but what are you doing all of those things for? What's the purpose that drives you to do all of those things? What are you really after in those things? All three of those questions are, are getting at what is your sense of identity, the sense of significance and belonging? And the sailor asks uh, these questions in this order. They say, what is your mission? Where are you from? Who are your people? But notice how Jonah reverses the order when he answers here. He leads with his race in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And we should laugh at that right there, right? This man who's trying to run from the presence of the Lord, and he says, I worship the God who made the sea right, and the dry land. And he's running at sea thinking, I can get away from him. And he made the sea, Jonah. You just said that. He, he's going to find you. You can't get away from him. But it's significant that he reverses the order because in it, Jonah is making it clear that he puts his race out in front as the most significant part of his identity, right? Ahead of his faith, which seems to clearly infer that, that, what he's fi- what, that that's where he's finding his most fundamental identity. Jonah is not unique in that. Many people simply tack their faith on to something else that's really the heart of their identity, but we're beginning here to see uh, really why it is that Jonah ran, why he really refused to go to Nineveh. It wasn't so much that he was afraid of what those evil, cruel, violent Assyrians might do to him. It wasn't so much that he doubted what God could do. It was more about the fact that he found his primary, primary identity in his race and nationality. And the idea of calling people of a hated race, a hated nationality, to repentance and seeing them actually experience God's mercy was unbearable for him. Jonah's relationship with God was not as basic to his identity and significance as his race. And that's why when the word of the Lord came 
and his loyalty to God's word and his loyalty to his people felt like they were in conflict with one another, he chose to support his nation over taking God's message and mercy to a new society. But the reality is that that Jonah's not alone in this, right? We we display the same attitudes all the time, not always in the same ways uh, as Jonah, not just, you know, cultural narrowness like he's experiencing, but, but it's always, no matter what it is, it's always the result of not finding your most fundamental identity in Christ, and, and that your faith in Jesus doesn't go deep enough into your heart to really be at the center of who you are. God desires that your relationship with him would be the most fundamental, core, central part of your identity. And the reality is that many things can block that from happening. It's not just race and uh, nationality here, like with, with what's happening with Jonah, but, but it, it's possible to sincerely believe that that you have been forgiven, right? Jesus died for your your sins, you've been forgiven, and yet you find your significance and your security more in your career than you do in Jesus, or more in your relationship status than you do in Jesus, or more in the balance of your bank account than you do in Jesus, right? Tim Keller explains this. He He says, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racist and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this becomes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. And those shallow identities, they leave us blind, unable to truly see ourselves for who we are and what we're struggling with, just like Jonah. He can't see What a mess he is. He's blind to it. He can't see any of it in himself. But that's the thing. If you live with any sort of identity built on you and your achievement, your goodness, you won't have an identity secure enough to admit your faults, to admit your shortcomings, to admit your need. And you'll end up being hostile rather than gracious and kind to anyone who is different or disagrees with you or threatens your identity. If you're like Jonah, your identity is most fundamentally in your nation or race. You'll end up hating other nations and races. If it's in your politics, you won't just disagree, but you will hate the other side. If it's in your job, your bank account, your, your, your beauty, your relationship status, you will hate anyone who seems to threaten come in between any of that. An identity in anything other than Christ is always an insecure identity, which means you'll not only be blind to your own weaknesses and flaws, but but you'll always be contrasting yourself with someone else and, and attacking them when they're out of line or in a disagreement or 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 perceived or perceived threat to your identity. And what happens when you do that is you reduce people. You dehumanize them. They're no longer image bearers in your mind. They're caricatures, right? Two-dimensional images of, of what you think they represent, what you've decided that they represent, which makes it super easy to hate them. Super easy to hate them and exclude them and drive them, push them away from you. 
That's why we just cancel anyone who doesn't measure up, who doesn't check all the boxes on our list of cherished beliefs and values. And we just pridefully sneer at the liberal social justice warriors or we loathe the conservative hateful bigots all while being completely blind to our own arrogant pride that's very much consuming us from the inside out. We share in Jonah's irony. He so desperately needs the very mercy of God that he finds so troubling, and we do too. Our identity needs a shift, and by God's grace, it can. But the beauty is, is that in Jesus, we're gifted a, a new identity. We don't earn or work for that identity. It's given to us freely. In any other sort of identity, you, you gotta work for it. You gotta build it. You gotta maintain it. You gotta earn it, achieve, attain, keep, which means you gotta fight for it, which means you're gonna fight other people for it, anyone who challenges it. But when you put your faith at Jesus, at that moment, you are fully received and accepted by God on the basis of Christ's work alone, not yours. And at that moment, you're adopted into his family as his beloved child. You receive unconditional love, as, uh, uh, you know, not, 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 not like a, a, a boss who's like wanting to see your performance, but like a perfect parent, a perfect parent with unconditional love. Jesus gives us solid ground to stand on him, and, and he gives us the identity that we need that can't be taken, that can't be taken from us by someone else. It can't be wrecked even by our own undoing. And that frees us, friends, to be honest about our sin, our flaws. It frees us to admit how far we fall short. And yet even in the midst of owning our failures, we can rejoice and boast, not in ourselves, but in Christ and his grace not in your strength and achievements, but in his achievement for you. And knowing that while you were his enemy, Christ loved you and willingly died for you to save you, that frees you to love even your enemies. After all, he loved you. So you can love your enemies. You can be engaged charitably with those who disagree with you. Frees you to have compassion for those who actually do truly oppose you and hate you. That's the freedom of a heart rooted in resting in a Christian identity. And that also results in a heart of sacrificial love. Jonah is exposed. They ask him what to do. And he says, throw me in. Throw me in. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Jonah's repentant here. He's, oh, how noble. He's sacrificing himself for everyone else. But I think the larger context of the book will show that that's not really what's happening. I think rather than repentance, this is probably Jonah acknowledging, I can't run from God. I might as well just be thrown into the, the fury of his wrath and let him just kill me now and get it over with. But again, you see the sailors' compassion. They won't just immediately do what Jonah says. They're like, oh, you want us to kill you? Let's row for shore as hard as we can until they can't do it anymore. And even then, what do they do? They, 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 they pray for God's mercy. 
Right, look at this, verse 14 through 16. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up, hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah doesn't repent, but the sailors do. They do. You don't recognize this maybe as quickly as we would if we spoke Hebrew. But anytime in the Old Testament, when you see the Lord, and it's the all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, like that, that's what we put in the English as a substitute for the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. So as these men pray, they're taking upon themselves the covenant name of God. What does that mean? It means they are putting themselves as God's people. They're, they're saying, we belong to you now. It's a conversion that you have here. They're worshiping God. They're praying for forgiveness for what they're about to do and praying for God's mercy for what they're about to do. And then as they throw him in and, and the sea is calmed, what do they do? They respond in worship. They're awestruck. And they, they, make, they offer a sacrifice of praise. They offer and make vows to God. Now, lots of people make vows when they're in trouble, right? God, if you get me out of this, if you'll save my life, I'll do anything for you. But here, these men, it's after the sea is calm, after they've been delivered, that they make vows to the Lord. It's a conversion. It's conversion. Jonah, the anti-missionary, has reluctantly helped a bunch of pagan sailors become followers of God. The irony and the beauty. But Jonah gets tossed in as a sacrifice. Fatalistically, probably, somewhat reluctantly, most likely, probably, definitely not for the joy that was set before him. But he is serving in this moment as a substitutionary sacrifice. He's tossed into the fury of that storm for the rest of the people to save them from certain destruction. It shows us the nature of real love. It's sacrificial. It's selfless. Think about being a parent, for those of you who are parents. Like being a parent is a sacrifice. It's a sacrificial love. When the kids are little, right, you're, you're nonstop reading books, reading and reading and reading. Do we have to keep reading? Uh, you you got to talk a lot to those little ones. Otherwise, they'll never learn to speak for themselves. They'll never get a grasp of the language. You, you have to do a lot. Kids need nurturing. They need feeding, and they need lots and lots and lots of money, right, uh, through the years. When did they get off the payroll? Not yet for me. Uh, so, right, uh, Yes, they need lots of hugs too, but, but lots of things. And all that entails sacrifice. It entails sacrifice on you as a parent. Kids are a blessing from the Lord, no doubt. We're not saying that they're not. But they definitely be, have a major impact on your life for a good number of years. Yet if you don't pay that price as a parent, your kids will grow up a mess, all sorts of problems. You have to lose much of your freedom in those years so that they can grow up to become free, self-sufficient adults later. That's one example, but there, there are many more. 
many more. How about whenever you forgive someone when you could just pay them back? It's a sacrifice. But when you do that, the beauty of sacrificial love is is that in the end, it doesn't diminish you, but instead it grows you. It makes you stronger. It makes you more joyful. It makes you more whole, which only makes sense because that's the same kind of love that, that Jesus has shown us. We're getting close here, I promise. That's how Jesus loves you, with sacrificial love. In response to the Pharisees asking him for a sign, Jesus responded with this in Matthew 12, 39 through 41. It'll be up here. I'm not gonna read it all. But he points to, he speaks of the sign of Jonah, right? They ask for a sign. He says, this is the only sign you're gonna get, the sign of Jonah. And then he mentions that he's greater than Jonah. And when he's saying that, he's talking about how just as Jonah was sacrificed to save those sailors, he's going to be sacrificed to save us. He's the true and better Jonah. Jonah was cast out somewhat reluctantly for his own sins. Jesus was without sin, but willingly for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross to take our sins upon him and die once and for all, to pay the once and for all penalty for our sin. Jonah was thrown out into the raging sea, but only came near to death. He didn't actually die, but Jesus actually died. He suffered not only physical death, but the raging fury of God's wrath meant for you in your sin so that he might shower you in the unending fountain of his grace. Jesus is, of course, the end-all, be-all, substitutionary sacrifice, the very essence and example of sacrificial love. In the end, what we discover here, friends, is that the heart that God desires from us is the heart that God has for us. Jesus alone truly possesses, uh, possesses a heart full of compassion. He alone can secure an identity that rests in him alone in his finished work. And he truly has a heart of sacrificial love. His cross and empty tomb declare it. And it's only in looking to Jesus that our hearts can be made like his. It's only in seeing his compassion for us that we can be moved to have compassion for our neighbors. Seeing how Jesus freely sought the common good, including our own, is what moves us to use our faith for the common good of our city and the people around us meeting needs practically, caring deeply for our fellow image bearers. It's only in remembering that it's the finished work of Christ that defines us, that secures our adoption as as God's children, that gives us an unshakable identity that can never be taken from us. Only remembering who we are in Christ, only then are we free to own our faults, to actually be honest about our sin. And only then are we freed to extend love to our enemies. Remembering Jesus is the one who not only loved his enemies, but came to die for his enemies. That frees us to engage respectfully, hospitably, with love and care, generosity and grace with those who are very different, those who disagree, and even those who do staunchly hate us for being followers of Jesus. It's the sacrificial love of Jesus that moves us to have a heart of sacrificial love. 
to invest our time, our abilities, our resources in loving and serving others, even when it costs us dearly. That's the kind of heart that God desires. That's the kind of heart that this world really could use a lot more of. And thankfully, it's the heart that Jesus has for us. May he move our hearts to be more like his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see in your son your heart of compassion. Help us to remember his sacrificial love and help us to find our identity in Jesus and all that he's done for us, that we might more and more have a heart like his. Holy Spirit, help us to have patience and grace, humility and kindness. Help us to be quick to forgive and seek to understand. Help us to be ambassadors of your mercy and justice, always remembering that we are sinners saved by your grace. May we be ruled by your love. May we reflect your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.